Okay. Ready? So I felt pretty strong by the end of last week uh, when we were assigned the Beguiled that I'd figured out Arthur's little secret marathon. Uh, so leaving recording last week, uh, ha- having watched uh, Phantom Thread um, and you know being assigned the Beguiled, I'm like, okay, these are both movies that come out in 2017. Both are either a remake or a direct homage to another movie, and both are horny horny. So my third guess was The Shape of Water, another 2017 movie that is uh, very clearly an homage to another movie and is horny horny. But then Mushrooms played a key yeah. role in this movie, as they did in Phantom Thread. So, you know, my, my all my detective work is out the window. Uh, much like Harry Hole, I'm totally freestyling it now. I, I think that's going to be the theme. I think it's going to be death or poisoning by mushrooms. I, I don't know. We're creeping up right on the one year mark of our accidentally horny marathon. And I do, <laughs> I do think, I don't know. I, I just, Arthur is, you know, he, he's known to be a wily one. He's a, he's a trickster. Um, he, he's sneaky in that way. He is, he is full of falsehoods and deceits. I agree. Speaking of people who are full, full of uh, falsehoods and deceits, <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about a movie star in Colin Farrell. Um, that was not an intro for our guest, but we do have one. Of those. <laughs> uh, See that was sort of that was sort of a fucked up segue. Um, you might know this wonderful person from this show. You might know this person from their own show, Twilight, uh, where two grown adults yell at each other about Twilight. Uh, it's our very good friend, the one and only Frightful Fem, Good Trash Media's uh, Ghoul Du Jour, uh, Kirsten Thurkelson. Hello, very honored to be here as always. So glad to have you, Kirsten. Now, Dustin, what what the hell are we doing here today? We are looking, I think I may have watched the wrong movie, though, because Kirsten was going to be on, so I watched The Begooled on, uh... <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Pretty bad. Uh, thank you, Arthur. Thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. No, uh, we are, we, welcome, hello everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table, we watch the films. You'll never watch the film today's course, although this marathon so far has been somewhat exceptional to that particular rule. And uh, we apply film studies type analysis to the movies that don't, uh, quote-unquote, deserve it. Um, I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton, and I feel very prepared to talk about this movie because I basically have this same dream at least once a year. <laughs> and we are, again, thrilled to have Kirsten Thurkelson on the show here with us. Now, if you're tuning in for the very first time to the Good Trash Honorcast, what I want you to know is that this is an analysis show, not a uh, review show, and that does mean that we will spoil the film and... Uh, we may have done it already, in fact, but uh, we will try to avoid some of those spoilers in the first parts of the show. This looks like this in the synopsis. Again, spoiler free. We'll do thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be gentle spoilers like you do when you read a review. We'll do an exercise called expanding the syllabus, which might or might not involve gentle spoilers of this film or films in its orbit. And then finally, we get out of business and we'll do analysis. And that's when all spoiler bets are off. So that is your warning, dear friend and dear listener. So with that all said, Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you have a synopsis of The Beguiled for us? A young student at a girls' school in Confederate Virginia comes across a wounded Union soldier. Feeling it's the Christian thing to do, she brings him back to the school where the remaining few students, instructor, and headmistress try to figure out what to do with him. After tending to his wounds, the dynamics in the school begin to shift, and soon the presence of a man laying flat on his back, helpless, (laughs) 
in the house begins to create tensions between the women. It's uh, an anime. Oh, see, he, he made some emphasis there on the on the uh, helplessness and the caregiving aspect. So now I'm sticking other thoughts about the marathon, but we'll get to that when we get to a uh, reveal time of the last film in the uh, series. It's uh, a good thing we've already done misery. Otherwise, sure, that that would really be <laughs> throwing <laughs> the, the calculus off here as far as what our ne- the end of this marathon could possibly be. Interesting. Well, with all of that, let's go to our guest first. Um, we're going to do thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Kirsten, do you like this movie and why or why not? Uh, or why does it or doesn't it work for you? Uh, okay. So initially when I started watching it, I also may have made a mistake because I watched it. Um, oh, I finished it up probably about 20 minutes ago um, <laughs> and then immediately came in to sit down and talk to you guys about it, uh, which was which is my bad. Um, I might have needed a little bit longer to sit and digest it. Uh, I should have expected that knowing that it's Sofia Coppola, but hey, here we are. Um, initially going in, I didn't love it for the first man probably like 40 minutes uh i was like this is going really slow like it was billed as a thriller like and you know i respect a, I respect a slow burn but you gotta have you gotta have enough stuff in there to kind of catch you and keep you interested and i think it's a little bit dubious whether this movie has that from the beginning but once it really gets rolling, it really gets rolling. And I found myself uh, a lot more intrigued by it, caught up in the drama. And uh, I think I think I liked it, ultimately. I think I'm landing on the side of I liked it and had a good time. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again. Uh, and I don't know what I would necessarily recommend it to other people. Um, but I, I thought it was fine. Very good. I think that is a fine analysis uh, or a review of the film. Uh, Dalton, what do you say in review? Do you like this movie or not? Man, this sure is lit well, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie is lit good. Uh, people are good at the talking part. You know, I like I like it when actors are having fun. Uh, Colin Farrell seems to be having a, a great damn time. Uh, and so does everybody else. See, there's actually a really lovely quote from him. Uh, about how this is like the best set he's ever worked on. And he was like, yeah, it's just, it's just nice to be around a bunch of uh, uh, very professional, uh, very very nice women. And uh, I, I think that's just nice. Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as Kirsten, a little flip, flip-flopped. I, I was really into this at first. Uh, I, I agree that it is a little light on the tension that I, I feel like uh, I, I assumed would be there. Uh, I, I did not chase my completionist tendencies and, and watch uh, Don Siegel's 1971 uh, original adaptation of Beguiled. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that version, uh, things that are in it that are not in this version. You know, we'll, we'll get to that later. Uh, just wanted to give that, that context though. I, 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 you know, I, I know some things about the original, but uh, you know, didn't watch it. So I can't really compare it to that from what I've heard though. It, it does seem like sort of that, that tension is much stronger and, and is much more, stated deliberately there is a lot of subtext of danger happening throughout this movie um and not just coming from colin farrell just from like the existing within a war zone uh aspect of the film uh, and, and i found that very compelling uh, for whatever reason for me by the end of the film i just kind of felt like we had lost any sense of trying to provide characterization on anyone uh, and people are just sort of put in a position to pr- do things that would move the story along, which is, you know, fine. That happens in movies sometimes. Uh, but I just felt like 
Um, the, the sort of slow burn that is the beginning of this movie did give a lot of room for that. Uh, and, and again, you know, people's motives are not always clear in the beginning of this movie, but I really liked that aspect of it. I thought every performance was layered. Um, very well. Elle Fanning is doing a bunch of really interesting stuff. And so is Nicole Kidman. Like both of those characters, I feel like are really interesting as far as scenes that could mean a couple of different things. Right. And, and Kirsten Dunst is uh, very good here. I mean, I like her in pretty much everything. I, I don't think I've seen her in something and gone. She, she doesn't work here. Um, and that's really the only reason I'm not hyping up her performances. I, I just truly think she's always good. Um, but yeah, you know, Again, it's shot very well, uh, and I think every performance is strong. I like the the absence of score, except for uh, you know the occasional like drone uh, sound, and not you know not the flying thing with cameras, just kind of a like a a real nine inch nailsy uh, sort of buzz going on in the background. I thought that was cool, uh, but even that that's very sparse. We don't get much of it. Uh, but yeah, for whatever reason. Uh, I just want to take a nap afterwards, and I, I too probably could have stood to watch this a little bit uh, further back from talking about it, uh, I'll confess. But uh, yeah, you know, this is not to the film's discredit. I like its sort of dreamy vibe, which is, you know, very Sofia Coppola, at least, uh, you know, there's some blind spots in, in her filmography that I'm not familiar with. But when I think of the films of hers I've seen, I do kind of think of them as being dreamy in some ways. And I, I think this definitely has that. Um, for whatever reason, it just, you know, every time it, it grabbed me, it, it was not able to, to hold me. Um, so similarly, don't think I will be recommending this to anybody uh, unless they're a Sofia Coppola completionist. Uh, it does make me curious to check up with the original, you know, just to, as far as like getting to do that compare and contrast, which I, I think uh, would be very interesting. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Arthur Gordon, what do you think? Do you like this movie? You picked it. Do you, did you do it because you wanted to inflict it on us? Or because you wanted us to enjoy it? Uh, I, I picked it because of the marathon. Uh, <laughs> obviously. I uh, it, of, it, of course. The yeah, marathon. If, who's, who's, it fits who's, in the bigger puzzle, right? And that's sure. actually kind of what I appreciate. I appreciate things about it uh, and where it sits in a context that we'll get to uh, probably by next week. Um, but I think that uh, it's a beautiful film. Like Dalton mentioned, right? It looks great. Uh, the, the way it's lit, the way it's shot. Uh, there's a great kind of... Uh, checkmate moment at the end of this movie um with a, a really cool shot reverse shot uh that, that's just framed beautifully uh, and the, the the framing within that and then the reactions from everybody involved i think is really haunting and, and i appreciate those moments i i think it's just overall maybe just a solid movie like i feel like it's doing everything pretty well uh but i think to kind of both uh, dalton and kirsten's points it, it never feels like it's going to that next gear when it needs to i think it does maybe feel a little too restrained or doesn't want to push necessarily where it should um well like everybody involved i, I think it's a good cast uh i i think it's a, a fine solid film um but I, I, that what really sticks out to me obviously are the aesthetics i think more than anything uh, and that kind of dreamlike nature of it or i think a lot of picnic and hanging rock um, and then that similar aesthetic uh, Peter Ware's doing there. Uh, and so that part about it, I appreciate. And I kind of like this. I don't know. I, I like the setting and, and just the, the, the kind of background of war. And we kind of hear that in the, the sound design, right? Uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, but that that's where I land at it. I don't necessarily love it. I, I really enjoyed this on the first watch uh, when I first saw it. Uh, this time, I don't think it really gets me there quite again um but 
I, I still think it's just, you know, it's like, well, like a B plus movie, right? It's just solid. I think down the line, but it never really quite goes into that a territory at any, with any particular thing, except for maybe the look of it. So that's where I'm at. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for that. Arthur Gordon. Um, I'm going to have to say, I still like the movie quite a bit more than I think than everybody else does. Uh, it made my top 10 for sure in 2017. It may have even cracked the top five for me, if memory serves. I'd have to go back and look or listen to a podcast all the way through to find that information out, and that sounds like work. So I probably won't do that. But uh, I, I do remember liking the movie quite a bit, and I still like it because it is, as you guys are saying, is it in some way stylistically or thematically in terms of narration? Uh, you know, use of the camera, etc. Uh, is it is it groundbreaking? No. Is it amazing? Sort of turn in terms of a new kind of performance from the cast? No, not really. But that all being said, it as you guys are saying, it's a really solid, well made kind of psychosexual thriller that is very subdued, and uh, that subdued nature, I that subtlety. I find it to be really kind of fascinating. And so unlike a movie in the hands of another filmmaker trying to do something like this with the same uh, bones of whatever Don Siegel put together, and I have not seen the Don Siegel Clint Eastwood well, original either. And to what I understand, you've just described it. <laughs> it. It is all of the things that you just, the opposite of all the things you just oh, said. Really? It is not restrained. And it is it is all text not subtext yeah uh, see and I, well, I, and I don't care for that you know and so knowing that you know Don Siegel's doing that in the 70s and I, can, I don't know who would deign to remake this film in the 20 teens as of now in terms of major filmmakers but uh, Sofia Coppola's choices in doing that I, I think make it really really interesting I, I think there is a strong directorial voice there in the uh, in the screenplay itself as this film chooses to use a look, uh, a, a, a brief exhalation, and uh, lighting to communicate a lot of mood and feeling that that I, really works for me as just an engaging piece of cinema. So I felt like I was engaged throughout the entire watching of the film, uh, both times that I've seen it. And, and for me, that's that's pretty it's pretty uh, impressive because I do get bored quite easily and I do get distracted. And it, it seems that I, 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 it's one of the kinds of movies that I like to watch. So for me personally, I, I really do enjoy it a lot. I think it's a very, very good film. But no, is it going to make my all-time list or anything like that? No, I don't think it would do on any of those things. But it is it's a movie that I would, I now and will continue to probably gush about if it were to come up in conversation. Though maybe not necessarily the first film that would come to my mind in bringing it up in conversation. Uh, if I was talking movies with friends at a dinner party per se, I do have to say this though. The apple pie discussion scene is <laughs> the funniest, most adorable thing ever. I just, I, I love everything about that dinner party scene and uh, just the way in which that sort of cattiness and bits of flirtation and trying to get one's you know foot in the door it, it it works uh, just so well, and uh, so I think it's an, uh, of a, of a movie full of outstanding moments. It was a real standout for me as something that would otherwise be something of a throwaway scene in a lot of other movies. So anyway, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Generally pro, although middling towards average, 
uh, in that regard. Let's move on, though, to our little uh, thought exercise called Expanding the Syllabus. Arthur, can you tell us what that's all about? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, <laughs> expanding the Syllabus is a thought experiment wherein we, the hosts, and our guest hosts, assemble an academic course or module within a course based around the assigned viewing for the week and adjacent texts from books and articles to tangentially related films and stories. There, I mean, yeah, that's exactly what we do. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, Kirsten. What would you do if you were going to teach a class using uh, this crazy thing called The Beguiled? Okay, so I uh, went towards um, basically building a class that's all about comparing uh, sort of directorial dynasties. Um, so I would pair this one probably with, um, I mean, obviously, Sofia Coppola is the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and I would actually pair this one with uh, Dracula. Um <laughs> Partially because I, I, the Dracula Defender has logged on. I love I love that film. Um, I know that there's some uh, I know there's some you know questions about Keanu's acting and accent sorry, work what? specifically, um, but I think that there is a conversation to be had about what Sofia Coppola is doing in this film in terms of the naturalistic vibe that it's going for. Um, it is very well lit. Uh, most of the nighttime scenes are, you know, almost entirely, uh, I don't know exactly how they did this, if they actually did just use candles or if they uh, used some combination of candles and electric lighting to get the vibe that they are just, you know, completely in the dark with the exception being candlelight. But I think that there's, there's a conversation to be had um, about the naturalistic, uh, uh, aesthetic of of this film and the minimalist use of of soundtrack and the sort of more maximalist uh stagey um old school hollywood way that uh francis uh chose to chose to shoot uh his version of dracula um some other uh some other father child uh directorial pairings that we would look at would be um Anthony Perkins uh mm -hmm. who uh directed Psycho 3 um while also still starring as Norman Bates um and his son Oz Perkins who currently makes very so the the Psycho franchise kind of went uh, a little pulpy after the first one which is you know classic of course but um Oz Perkins is a decidedly more um how do i want to put this uh he he makes artsy fartsy horror films yeah. uh he's responsible I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah i mean he's responsible for i am the pretty thing that lives in the house as well as um gretel and hansel uh, i think that we would probably for the class go with um the black coat's daughter um and uh talk a little bit about uh Talk a little bit about how different the um, while while each of those is technically a horror film uh, wound up being uh, between the Black Coat's Daughter and Psycho Three, um, and why that might be. Um, and then for my third pairing, I would look at uh, Panos Cosmatos's Mandy. Woo 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 woo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and talk about. Uh, 
his dad, who's uh, George. Is it George yep. Cosmatos? George. Yeah. 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 Um, and we would look at uh, his Rambo First Blood Part Two and talk a little bit about uh, how each of those films approaches action differently. Interesting. I thought you were going to go with Tombstone, but I like that pick. I think that that's that's the better choice to yeah. pair with Mandy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my uh, class, and I hope you're taking it. That's dope. Yeah, yeah, I, like I it. love that. Yeah, uh, listener, if you were wondering, like I was, Psycho Four's the one that has all the flashbacks to young Norman Bates while uh, Tony Perkins is calling into a radio show talking about his life. Um, <laughs> we we have discussed the uh, the Psycho canon at length on this show. I feel like I'm a big defender of Psycho Four, and I remain one. But that's I like a- Psycho. I watched it a t- it, God. It was on TV constantly uh, when I was growing up. I just feel like it was always on cable. Um, but it was a Showtime uh, original, which I think is very funny. Uh, Good stuff. Wild. Yeah, it truly wild stuff. But that by the like the late nineties, early aughts, it was just heavy in the basic cable rotation. Um, yeah, that's a fun class, and I like that you are like engaging with the nepotism of Hollywood while not like necessarily poo pooing it. I guess. I mean, obviously, there's influence there, and then I sure. think some some I think some children of directors are. Uh, really inclined to sort of go the other way but influence is influence you know if you're if you're going along with it in a positive way or if you're lashing back against it right on right on very good thank you for that miss kirsten thurgelson um mr dalton stewart what say you what would your syllabus look like well i'm glad arthur brought up uh picnic at hanging rock um i really my first impulse was to try and find something about boarding schools within this but too many blind spots for me all i could think of was sleepers which I i don't want to talk about sleepers that movie bumps me out um and again i haven't seen a, a picnic and hanging rock or the the mini series the, the re-adaptation uh so i, I pivoted uh and, and i do want to talk about war movies that aren't really about the war because uh, i don't i don't know i don't feel like there are enough of those truly um and i think it's fun that nicole kidman's in two of them uh the other one of course being cold mountain uh, also mm-hmm. about sort of the waning days of, of the civil war uh the american civil war um I also would definitely want to be looking at Pan's Labyrinth, uh, which of course takes place against the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War, uh, A League of Their Own taking place against uh, World War II. Um, we'll, of course, look at both Beguiled and uh, Cold Mountain. Um, but, you know, there's there's a handful of other films. I, could could we do Schindler? We could. I don't know. If, I, I feel like a Holocaust movie might as well be about the war. Uh, I feel like the more interesting thing when, when we're talking about Films that are engaging uh, with a time and place in history are, are ones that take place away from where the 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 meat of the story take place, I guess, to, to kind of posit historical events and just uh, in, in terms of story. Because, again, you know, dealing with the show is no joke. And that is like the heart of what's going on in the European front uh, of World War II. And while, again, I, I think those films are also very much not about the war writ large they are very much about conflict and the and the the sort of conflict that um fueled uh germany's march towards war but I, again i think looking i mean we could really do basically any contemporarily set american film uh made, made between 2002 and now um i think there's value in that but again just sort of looking at how, how we parse historical conflict um both from you know, a modern POV and also from a, you know, typically Hollywood POV because it is Hollywood that has often got the budget available to engage with a period piece just because, you know, that kind of stuff's expensive. It's, it's not cheap, um, which isn't to say there aren't great 
uh, films that deal with, you know, period settings and do it on the cheap. I think Vast of Night uh, from last year, uh, year before last now, no, it was last year. Um, you know, if, if you want to accept the the premise that the Cold War uh, is a, a big conflict, I think that finds a way to engage, you know, with, with that period setting, with very much the insecurities and um, anxieties of the time, uh, you know, of the mid to late 1950s. I, I think that offers us a lot. Uh, we'll probably be looking at this book that uh, I just recently stumbled on. Uh, by recently, I mean while I was doing research for this this proposed class. Uh, but it's uh, Gary W. Gallagher's Lost, uh, Causes One Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War. So we definitely take a look at that uh, and find some readings from there to kind of help us uh, inform what we're doing with this class, right? How, how are we going to engage with these you know screen texts uh, that are about war without being about it? Uh, and, and again, I think that's that's why I picked *The League of the Road*, right? Like, I think that uh, that aspect of it is very interesting. It's part of why I like *The Beguiled*, right? It's it's finding, especially in historical conflict, uh, women are so much relegated to the the sideline of uh, you know getting sad phone calls or whatever uh, in, in war movies. And I think all of the ones I've picked, not just because they take place outside of the front lines of the war, but I, I think largely. Um, that's probably what motivates a lot of the filmmakers that, that choose to gravitate towards these stories, right? Is finding people, especially, you know, I've, I've know enough about what Del Toro has to say about Pan's Labyrinth that, you know, that's a movie about women and children mostly. Uh, and when the war shows up, it is represented by angry uh, middle-aged men. And, and I think that there, there's value there. And again, there's a, probably a ton of blind spots. I'm not thinking of uh, if anybody has any that immediately came to mind, I'd love to hear them. Um, but yeah, I, I just, that's a, a subgenre of war movie that I don't, I don't know. I just don't feel like I've seen enough of that. Um, and I don't feel like when those movies come out, they get a lot of love. I remember, you know, Cold Mountain, I feel like it had some award buzz when it came out. Um, I feel like Beguiled kind of came and went. I, I truly, I could not believe it had been four years since this movie uh, was released. Um, but yeah, that, that's what we would look at. We'd try to, to wrestle with that sort of, how do we deal with depicting the home front or if not even the home front necessarily uh, the, the tertiary and peripheral uh, aspects of a, uh, a place that is undergoing conflict? Very good. Very good. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'd take that class too. Um, all right. Well, what I would do, I think, with this film is I, I'm looking at questioning of social norms of romance and polite society. Uh, looking back from the 20th century, two centuries past. So it would be a look. It would be a class that examines the period piece, specifically looking at uh, manners and well, romance, uh, dating norms, uh, specifically uh, courtship norms. And so I would use the beguiled uh, towards that end, and then I would move to uh, Martin Scorsese's *The Age of Innocence*. Uh, we've already talked about Daniel Day-Lewis last week as we were looking at uh, the Phantom Thread, or Phantom Thread, no definite article there still, and uh, looking at that relationship with uh, the already engaged uh, Daniel Day-Lewis character, uh, I believe Winona Ryder's character is already married, and uh, just how that's all negotiated in sort of late 1870s uh, New York society uh, as another interesting counterpoint to... The, the propriety that's sort of being uh, gestured toward throughout The Beguiled um, as a central piece. Uh, the other film that I would use then is much more uh, tied up with ideas of manners, but still also of courtship, and that is Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. 
looking at that film and the way in which that character negotiates, fails to negotiate, uh, gain status by learning how to play the game better as he moves uh, up in the ranks and rungs of higher society and eventually his courtship and perhaps disastrous marriage uh, towards the end of the film. And so I, I think just the way in which the 20th century looks back and is, is critical of some of those things, but also really does a lot of romanticizing of that time as well and how, how those needles get threaded and where the ideological point ends up falling as uh, these films uh, become pieces of art of the 20th century, uh, creating our new imaginaries of the, uh, the 19th and to an extent the 18th centuries. So that would be the class for me on that. Lots of old, long, candlelit movies, lots of costumes, and very well-designed sets. So good times, I hope, there. But there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on how your syllabus ought to get longer if you're thinking more about The Beguiled. But I believe now it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business And we're back. For some analysis, and there's a lot to be done here. I guess we could begin with the the sort of I, we just need the information. Dalton did some looking up of the history yes. and may know some things. I did not look up anything, nor did I watch Don Siegel's and Clint Eastwood's uh, original creation of The Beguiled in the '70s. What are the significant differences between the two films, Dalton? So, of course, both films uh, are an adaptation of the novel of the same name, um, and I think that is a little bit more how The Beguiled 2017 is billed, uh, more a uh, adaptation of the 1966 novel than a, a, a remake of the 71 film. Uh, but the 1971 film, uh, primarily, uh, there is a character uh, named Hallie, uh, who is a slave that is uh, enslaved at this school. Um there has been a lot of talk. Uh, the, the internet, of course, had things to say. Sofia Coppola had responses. Um, I, I think they do a really good job of giving the the overview, broad strokes of this uh, on um, uh, the Bechtel cast. They covered this film uh, shortly after it came out, uh, when it was still in, in theaters. And they, they got into the kind of ongoing discourse uh, around that. Uh, opinions vary, right? Um Ira Madison, um, you know, pretty noted culture critic, says, you know, Hallie in that film's kind of a token character anyway, so not really sad to see her go. On the other hand, uh, Clarkisha Kent had an article right around the time this movie came out that basically called bullshit uh, on saying, you know, well, you know, I didn't want to get into it because I I didn't want to mess up or I didn't want to get into it because uh, of X, Y, or Z reason. Uh, And basically... uh, says if if you are avoiding depicting uh, slavery in the South in your Civil War movie uh, because you want to focus on gender issues, you really aren't focusing on gender issues if you're not willing to focus on race and Southern white women's complicity uh, in uh, slavery. So uh, that's kind of the big stuff right out of the gate. Um, the others, yeah, Yoinks, of course, Gadzooks. Uh, I also there's a, a second uh, character who's a slave in the novel. Uh, that I was not able to find quite as much about. Uh, the other stuff is the, the sexuality is much more explicit. Um, 
the not a duenna martha um martha had a sexual relationship with her brother that we learn about in flashbacks in the 1971 film and that's sort of fueling her uh interest in corporal McBee. um there's uh, uh just a, kind of a feral quality to clint eastwood apparently once uh things take a turn um again the the other kind of big difference is that uh the the women and girls that populate the school uh, are much more upfront about the the fear and like not, not likely the possibility of, of rape at the hands of either one of the two armies uh, that are around their school, and there there is explicit discussion of both both people in both armies are bad. There's there's this is war, and that's just the reality of the world we're living in right now. Which of course the 2017 film definitely addresses like right out of the gate. I mean, it, it is a, a kind of touched on in a very early scene, but sort of both the the sexuality and the violence of 2017's The Beguiled are much more alluded to or dealt with in the subtext, while in uh, 71's The Beguiled, uh, they are much more at the forefront of the film. Uh, Again, haven't seen it. Uh, Now, the host over the Bechdel cast did, and uh, they much preferred it, which I thought was very interesting. Um, And they, you know, again, if you're curious about um, some people talking really in depth about the differences between those two films, again, I would refer you that direction. Curious. Um, it is curious, especially to me, that they like the other one better. Um, I do find my mind, at least, sees the way in which uh, you know there's that that kind of throwaway moment where the two Confederate soldiers come by for dinner uh, and they're hiding McBurney in the music room. And uh, yeah, that's a sends, much bigger sequence in the original, I guess. And which the, is... yeah, and they just send the girls upstairs saying, "You don't, I, we don't want you to tempt them," right? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. seems to me like much more of a 19th century way of speaking of it at all that the way in which the 19th century was so repressed overall in sure you know uh l fanning you know says the word right and is immediately like don't talk about it right uh and i think that there's a fair point right just sort of the genteelness not only of of southern society at that time but really yeah as you said like the 19th century uh america and europe are that's kind of the whole bread and butter of uh, polite society at that time period, right? Yeah, it seems to be just quintessential Victorian values uh, there. So it's I, I, it's interesting that a film that might be less realistic might, in some senses, achieve greater realism because I do think the threat is there and much more explicit at that particular moment than even what Sofia Coppola is able to uh, represent on screen. But yeah, that that. That, that kind of blows me back a little bit. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, it, it was very interesting to, to learn about uh, the adaptation differences for sure. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, now that we've got, I guess, that particular thing out of the way, let's go ahead, and, and Kirsten's already brought it up, and I think it's important. Sofia Coppola is considered to be one of the great sort of uh, auteurs of the, the, late, uh, the early part of the 20th century, or 21st century. And as such, can we put together what is it about auteurism hmm. that Sofia Coppola fits that particular bill? 
Uh, I know, Kirsten, I know you've seen more of Copeless Fumar. I know you've seen Bling Ring uh, and Marie Antoinette, which are blind spots for me. Uh, I actually have not seen Bling Ring. Really? For some Mm -hmm. reason, I thought, I guess we've talked about it enough that I just assumed you had, but you have seen Marie Antoinette, right? Bling Ring has been on my list for a while at this point. I keep meaning to watch it, and then other things come up. I love Marie Antoinette. I I think that that movie, uh, that, huh? In a lot of ways, that movie and this movie could not be more different because, I mean, Marie Antoinette is a significantly more maximalist film, I mean, which, and it should be because of the nature of, you know, that time period yeah. and just sort of the French aristocracy at large. But, um, yeah, I, uh, so you're, you're, you're wanting to know why, why she falls, uh, within, yeah, why do we Being think considered a her? What is her style? What what is the Coppola uh, filmmaking style? I guess is my question. I guess it all comes down to somewhat. Somewhat, I think it comes down to intent and making sure that every aspect of your film is. I don't want to say. I don't want to say necessarily that it has to all be saying something, but it's they're very complete works of art i think is what is what really sort of uh solidifies her station there um because i mean we've talked about you know like everything everything about this about this movie just has a very complete aesthetic right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and every choice every frame is extremely intentional you know, it's all trying to it's it, it's all trying to say something and whether or not it succeeds is, of course, you know, up to the viewer. But there's some gorgeous framing. There's a lot of there's a lot of really successful, in my opinion, anyway, um, just formal design um, of 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 scenes and of just the complete overall film and sense that's set. Does that make sense? It does. It absolutely does. And I, and I think to add to that, I, I do notice in terms of her style, her use of a soft focus uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to a harder focus uh, that seems to be continually throughout. And it's the way in which uh, her narration of female characters, you know, I'm looking at loss of translation or the version suicides that's the film that this really makes me think the most of. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I've always yeah. seen this really sure. too. But yeah, I, th- so much of both of those films, right, are s- dealing with the, the sort of ethereal blonde archetype. There right? is absolutely something that is inherently feminine and romantic in, I would say, most of her film. Again, I haven't. I, I'm not a. I'm not a completionist. Uh, whereas where her filmography is concerned, but a- almost everything of hers that I've seen has been distinctly feminine right in feel well i think there's that piece and i and i think she does sort of fit into andy saris's kind of categories of an auteur in terms of identifiable style but i think about timothy corrigan a lot when i think about her uh and i think about the auteur of commerce and the commercial auteur and i always get them backwards arthur can you help me at all or am i just gonna fumble on this one uh, yeah it's been a while uh... <laughs> i know right <laughs> Commercial tour. So one is used to sell posters, and one uses the system to produce their movies. Yes, um, and I think what tour. I would suggest is that she is the one think, that sells posters. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, yeah, because I mean, she doesn't really make those kind of, you know, Nolan would be kind of, I think the, I hate to call him an auteur, but I, I think he's kind of the <laughs> the one, right? Because he he makes, Batman Begins gets his money so he can make Prestige, makes Dark Knight so he can get yep. money from Inception, right? That idea versus Coppola, I mean, she hasn't really made those kind of massive movies, like those big studio things. Uh, David Lowry's another one, right? Where he's making Peach Dragon so he can go make uh, ghost story or old man and the gun and he makes another disney thing so he can make uh, green knight right uh and i don't think coppola has really kind of had that trajectory it really does feel like her name to an extent probably does sell the movies but even then i don't know that her name is as notice notable as other directors so i'd kind of even be maybe hesitant to call her even in that kind of realm of commercial tour i i just feel like she's a brand is what she's managed to do with her with her career is that you know kind of what kind of movie you're in for. sure and that feels deliberate right a brand There's to the... a very niche audience though yeah right yeah i th- i think what we're kind of talking around is while uh, papa francis kind of has this larger than life career trajectory um that ends with him saying he might as well have gone to vietnam because he made a movie there um <laughs> she stays in this much more not refined but like small scale enclosed spaces you know they're about virgin suicides is about a neighborhood um lost translation is about these two people hanging out uh in tokyo in in a hotel Uh, blingering which i haven't seen is about a tight-knit group of friends doing crime somewhere um is about a dude living at the 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 chateau marmont right like these are smaller scale films and we could of course spend the entire day saying is that by a deliberate choice by Sofia Coppola, or is that the nature of uh, the system in which she works that uh, it, it's hard for a woman to get a gigantic pile of money to go make uh, whatever uh, no holds barred uh, vision lives inside their brain, right? Like we, we're there's just no way um, we we don't have the time to do the interviews <laughs> to get the answers to these questions, right? But I, I think it is you. I, we we've talked around this definitely. There there is an aesthetic through line. And there is, yeah, I think brand is fair, right? Just insofar as that these are, no matter how different they are in theme or tone, they are sort of deliberately uh, restrained. I think the other marker uh, here, uh, we think about the auteurs, we think about the collaborations, and and from at least an on-screen standpoint, right? We've got the the, the working relationship with uh, Kirsten Dunst Mm -hmm. uh, since the beginning. Uh, Uh, Elle Fanning, sort of in the latter half, right? She's the kiddo in somewhere. Uh, oh okay yeah she's in some she's got bill murray twice right yep Um, yep bill murray she just did uh, another one with last year yeah so i mean that that piece is also there i think if you're looking at it from a purely auteur standpoint and she's good right i mean that's kind of the other idea of a auteur is that they're more than capable of constructing these things and i think Mm -hmm. she's shown that as well it Ah. is interesting that in the middle of her career sorry dustin i uh go right ahead pivot right back to you it you know, we're just kind of talking about, rather, I was thinking more about, you know, maximalism versus minimalism or, you know, sort of big, splashy, giant budgets. Marie Antoinette sort of does sit situated in the middle of her filmography as this um, much bigger film, right? I mean, it's it's a 40 million budget in 06, and that's leaps and bounds more expensive than basically every other movie she's made. I, I'm not doing the math right this second, but I would wager that that is about as much as all of her other movies budgets combined 
Yeah. And while that movie is, you know, well regarded, Kirsten is not the only person who likes this movie. There, there is a, the drum is being beat for Marie Antoinette, but it did not uh, go over at the box office. Super great. Uh, you know, it m- surpassed its production budget, but of course, you know, uh, marketing and all that, et cetera, uh, probably was didn't do the numbers the studio hoped it would do. So I'm sure that has had an impact on, on her career. But I, again, I don't know. I, I think her career is more interesting for it, that it, it is the, the story she's choosing to tell. I did, of course, forget that she uh, directed A Very Murray Christmas. So that's three times she's worked with Bill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. I did not that's realize a, that. That's I very funny. Not, I did not either. Yeah, this is really blowing my mind. I that's cannot funny. believe uh, we missed that one. Uh you, you were about to say something about uh, Sophia's career? Yeah, one, one thing I would say is uh, there is another parody between uh, her work and her father's work. You know, as uh, Coppola and Lucas and Spielberg and a, a lot of those other much more blockbuster versions of that thing called the New Hollywood in the late 60s and 70s were coming to the fore, they were uh, Americanizing the sort of habits and filmmaking styles and thematics of the French new wave. Mm. And so working kind of a 10 year window behind, I, I think Sofia Coppola really is, is much more of a contemporary to her French analogs, uh, like Mia Hansen love or uh, Celine Sciamma or, uh, you know, even like Catherine Briol uh, would be someone I might compare her with, but she does seem to, very much Americanized this sort of storytelling of these great uh, f- uh, female French directors and, uh, but does so in a much more American commercial kind of way, if that makes any sense. And so I think there's another level of parody there uh, between herself and her dad. Um, that'd be useful in, in what, what, like the syllabus that Kirsten gave us a little while earlier. You're saying parody with a T, right? Yes. Okay. just want to double check. No, not parody like a joke. No. Uh, gotcha. The, 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 I guess the parody is how commercial it is, but I don't think it's really making fun of it insofar as, you know, uh, I can't think of what an analog to Breathless would be. American Graffiti, I guess, might be a parody of Breathless, but it, it, it <laughs> m- much more, it, it, it's a style of storytelling and a, a use of characters and uh, direction in terms of acting that does, again, have some a- analogous nature to what um, Godard is doing with that film, but much more commercial than Godard's efforts. And I, I would say much more commercial than Selinsky. I'm, although I love girlhood, I think it's uh, less likely to find uh, audiences than really anything that Sofia Coppola puts out. And, uh, and that's not just because of the language barrier, but there are a number of other sort of infrastructural choices, but I think her style seems to be one that is having a broader appeal than what Skiyama might be doing, or well, that might be a good love. a good place to pivot to something we not all of us, but a couple of us quibbled with this film, uh, and that being this film is less commercial than it seems like it might be on the tin. I guess um, it, it seems more thrillery. It, it seems uh, not necessarily you know more commercial, but it definitely seems to, to have that sort of broad movie entertainment appeal. And I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't but it just has less of that than a trailer would lead you to believe probably. Uh, do we want to talk about like restraint and, and pacing at all? Uh, I don't know what I have to say about it. <laughs> um, anybody? I think that, I mean, you know, the pacing is a little bit, uh, 
I think it's too, I, get, I already mentioned this, but I think it's just too slow at the beginning is maybe mm. my I think that's maybe my number one quibble with the film, actually, because I do think that it's really beautiful. And I obviously don't have anything bad to say about, you know, any of the acting or, um, you know, uh, the any of the any of the drama as it unfolds later in the movie. I just man, I just wish that I <laughs> and I hate. I hate using this as a criticism because I always I, I think I think that saying that something is boring is lazy. Um, but I was having a hard time staying on track and like wanting to know what happens next or what happens to any of these people for that matter. You know, they all and maybe it is because it is uh, Civil War America, but everyone is just like so uptight and like kind of. A bunch of the a bunch of the boarding school girls are are kind of like they're kind of little shits, you know. Like <laughs> trying to trying try to trying to think of a nicer way to say that, but I mean, you know, like Elle Fanning is kind of a little shit. And the uh, the the oh, I can't think of her name. Amy is nice. Amy, of course, yeah. is you yeah. know she's like the good hearted one or whatever. What but, is that like, turtle's name? Hen- was it Henry? I think Hudson? Henry feels right. Henry feels right. Henry, okay. Right. Uh, was it Jane? Was that the uh, the other younger kid that? That's were, right. Yeah, yes, that Jane. Yeah. Jane's also yeah. kind of a little shit. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. but. <laughs> well, and Elle Fanning has crimped hair, which, other than being anachronistic, is is sort of a a, a sure sign that you, you might want to be wary of somebody. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, I mean, it was just, I, it was hard for me to find, you know, the the nugget of interest to keep me on board with wanting to know what happens next. Yeah. After Colin Farrell sponge bath, it sort of is a a lot of boring things. Uh, And I I agree with you. That is, it is what a a collection of words. Colin Farrell sponge bath. God, Colin Farrell sponge bath. Yeah. Look, you can find my new band, Colin Farrell sponge (laughs) bath at a, at a bar near you. Um, Yeah. Like that movie, that, that moment in the movie is, is filled with sexual tension. Right. And Mm -hmm. it seems like the rest of the movie is going to be doing something in that vein. And it's really not, and that's fine, but it, it does need to do something else. And th- there is no sense of mounting tension or mounting dread uh, really until we get now that said, there are stolen glances. There are. Um, I think it's too subtle. Though. Yeah. I think right. Maybe exactly. That's my critique. Yeah. It, well, and again, there is maybe... that Hitchcockian suspense built into it, right? That's something sure. that seems to be that we're, we're wanting that we're not getting, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, we've, I think we've got, that... Oh, go ahead, Arthur. Well, as you're saying, I think it's designed mostly to lull you into a false sense of security. Interesting. Right? Okay, uh, okay, it, I can see that. So that when that kind of essential push down the stairs happens, right? I mean, but I think to probably Kirsten's point is that it may never really ramp up as much as it should mm-hmm. match that kind of lead in right but because i think it's what's right you know it's oh maybe things aren't so bad they're actually going to get to you know and i think maybe watching a trailer for this kind of sets you up for what this movie does become but you know if you went into this maybe blind you're like oh maybe they're actually going to kind of learn to oh he's you know he's a northerner but he's not that bad you know we're all equal we're real people we all want to you know have sex with him uh Uh, it's kind of where it feels like it may be leading and then you get that turn uh there uh late in the movie um but I, I think you you all are pointing out that it may be just too subtle. 
to accomplish that. And I can't remember. Uh, was it was it Dustin? I don't I don't remember which one of you it was who said uh, something about you know there could have been a lot more character sort of development and well rounding. And I think that that might have also you know added to me being more invested in the unfolding mm-hmm. drama is caring about the characters, which I found it a little bit difficult to do. I do find sure. the movie relies a little bit too much on stardom, right? We've got Elle mm-hmm. Fanning. She's Elle Fanning. Pay attention. Yeah. Kirsten Dunst, pay attention because it's, you know, and Nicole Kid- Kidman, same thing, right? It's just because they are who they are as superstars, we're supposed mm-hmm. to already be invested a little bit. Yeah, it is again like the stolen glances, those those moments of subtle dialogue and you know a flirtation. I, I feel like really do give us a lot of characterization early on. Um, but yeah, it's that last chunk of the movie, um, and I don't know when your movie involves a wide shot of a plantation and and vo Colin Farrell screaming "You vengeful bitches!" Like I feel like I have entered <laughs> a sixth gear of your movie, and like we're 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 going now. Now we're off to the races and. Not really. Like, that's kind of the apex of the film in a way that's a little disappointing. And especially when we end up with, I don't know, part of the conflict in this house after that point is Elle Fanning uh, throwing Colin Farrell under the bus uh, as far as in regards to the the consensual nature of their encounter. Which, one, if that's in your movie, like, ooh, boy, you better do something with it, dog, because that's not that's not shit you want to play with uh, as far as i'm concerned uh but nothing really happens of that in other than uh kirsten dunce's character kind of rolling her eyes at el fanning um edwina right is that character's name yeah Uh, edwina just kind of rolls her eyes at alicia and and that's sort of the end of that and you know that's all right whatever but then we also have colin farrell like wait does he suck? Did he suck this whole time? Is he just mad because he woke up without a leg and doesn't believe that they needed to do it to save his life? Like there is so much ambiguity and motivation in the back half of this film, which again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that could be good. I I think it's nice that we don't have clear cut heroes and villains in this story. I really love that aspect of it. I just wish we had, I don't know, a scene or two more of literally everyone to get some more interior life. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a, the pacing of, of the end of this film feels really sweaty. Uh, like Mar- uh, Miss Martha, uh, Nicole Kidman sends out Amy, the youngest to go tie a, a blue bandana around the front gate, right. To, to signal any uh, Confederate troops going by that they've, they've got a union dude there. She gets caught, but then immediately afterwards goes back outside to get the mushrooms. They, uh, now we are in deep spoiler talk that they, they poison and kill him with, right? Like it's basically the same scene stacked next to each other. Mm-hmm. And it, that, hey, look, I've never written a screenplay, so I'm not going to pretend I know how to do it, but I, I know you're not supposed to do that. I, I know that that's a little, <laughs> that's a little sweaty. Uh, but again, I like a lot of this movie, which is why I think I, I did find the last 20 th- minutes or so, so frustrating is, I don't know, the preceding hour and change, like, I, I felt really pulled in by, even though, yeah, it kind of made me sleepy. Uh, it was a good kind of sleepy for the most part. I just really thought we were going to get one a little bit more buck wild at the end, and two, you know, I just want to know more about everybody's interior life. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like it could have been a longer film, and uh, that might have been a way to do that. You know, ninety minutes does come off as a little lean for a development of characters. Well, and I, you know, look, I see a 90 minute runtime and you know me, I get extremely hyped. Uh, so that might be on, on, on me as well. Right. I should have accepted that I was watching a 90 minute movie at some point, I guess. 
now here's the thing I, I want to move on into is, is the gender dynamics uh, of power in this film. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sort of, you know, powerlessness of uh, Colin Farrell's character, uh, the removal of his leg, which again, in a, in a Freudian reading is kind of an act of castration, which is something he makes a, a mar- remark about later on in the film. And uh, because his power and his manhood are sort of, you know, um, truncated as a result of all of that. Well, and he, then, he lives in a, in a United States that's even more ableist than the current one, right? right? So not having both of his legs is definitely going to change his life. For absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And so there, but so it becomes this, uh, you know, feminized power and, and they, they do finally kill him. Although, you know, at one point it's interesting because someone suggests that they hang him. And uh, Nicole Kidman's Martha says, "Too brutal." No, we're not. We're not going to. We're not going to submit to brutalism. <laughs> but we will poison this dude and sit calmly at the table and watch him die. And then, of course, have Amy, the girl who gathered the mushrooms, be the one to check his pulse. Um, uh... I, I I don't even know uh, what to say here. Again, I enjoy this movie a lot. Uh, I, I still find it to be a pretty fascinating watch. But I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that the gender politics that I would expect are really being met with uh, what Coppola is doing here. What do you guys think? Or not. I feel like everyone's waiting for me to talk. (laughs) I'm trying to decide if I want to talk. Well, one, yes, to be fair. Two, I've tried to decide how relevant it is that I think it is, it's one of the younger uh, students, but I think it is Amy that like starts to say, I could go get some poison ones and then trails off and says, pick some just a special for him or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I really, that goes hand in hand with the poisoning, right? Um, I don't know. I I agree. Women tend to murder more via poisoning uh, in real life. And that's just, maybe we don't need to feminize the the murder. I I don't know. I think it'd have been cool if they shot him a bunch of times. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I do. I do think think that that, I think that probably would have been out of character uh, for the time as well, though, that any of that. I mean, if anybody was going to do it, it'd be Nicole Kidman's character because she's the one who does what needs to be done. Right. She's she's the she's the the get stuff doneer around Mm -hmm. those parts. Um, Yeah, it's um, (laughs) it's also it's a little bit um, it's a little bit they do. They do Amy kind of dirty because she's isn't she's she's the one who originally saves him. Right. She's the the kind of uh, bleeding heart that, you know, feels bad for him on the side of the road. And she ultimately falls to her to be the one to uh, to get out of the mushroom. I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, And then and then finally, uh, finally poison him to death, which is. uh, Yeah, no, I mean, it. It is funny because it is not pleasant to watch. It turns mm-hmm. out, you know, even though, yeah, women do t- typically, you know, in general, choose more passive forms of murder, largely because, you know, a lot of times men are big and strong and it, it's, you know, violently threatening a man is fucking terrifying, speaking as, you know, uh, speaking as a, a a girl, a girl person. Um but uh yeah it's interesting he's definitely at a disadvantage also because you know he's one man and there's he's he's outnumbered right mm. he's pretty thoroughly outnumbered even though you know he's a soldier so he's likely physically stronger than than all of them um i do like the implication of his cowardice right like he's pretty upfront about the fact that 
he, he went a wall. Yeah. Oh yeah, he ran the fuck away. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I get it though. Yeah, he's new <laughs> to this country. Yeah, he's a draftee, dude. Like props. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> get. Uh, it is. I don't know. It it is interesting to have these women who own people say things like it's too brutal to hang him mm-hmm. uh, with a straight face. I don't mm-hmm. know. Again, it is the 1860s. That is what they think. But well, yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. The film. I don't know. Maybe that is the film remarking upon it. I guess distinctly yeah. southern irony. Yeah, I I guess what I was really would hope for in this situation is not a feminization of the masculine solution to this problem. You've Mm -hmm. got this terrible invasive force. How do we kill it? Right. That is Mm -hmm. the sort of masculine way to answer that, to to come up with some sort of calculus to solve that problem. And rather than a a feminized calculus arriving at, at some sort of different solution, which gets rid of him in some other way. They simply find a way to find the, the, the world of men's answer, which is kill it, kill it with fire. However you can kill it, kill it with mushrooms in this case, um, just to do that with again, sort of feminine trappings on top of it. And I, I found that just a little disappointing is what I guess I would say. If that makes sense. I can and, see that. I can see yeah. that. I definitely think that's valid. It is also, it's interesting just as far as like an arc of the film standpoint, like we're, the the premise we are going in on is this, uh, this strapping young lad is going to be the thing that tears all these people who've been living together through this war apart and also be the thing that brings them back together, which I don't know, as, as far as like closed circles of a movie go, that's pretty cool. Um, but I, you know, I, I agree that there, there maybe is a little something left on the table. For sure. Um, are there other major thematics that we want to discuss? I, I want to talk a little bit about the ending, but I want to save that for, you know, the ending. Um, where are we at? Uh, we got time to talk about the ending. Um, I can't think of anything I, I want to talk about other than saying not dealing with slavery is still a choice. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, we did discuss that a little bit already. Um, I do like, again, films about war that aren't about war. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the corrupting nature of war having some... Uh, impact on uh, the schools thinking about what do we do with this problem? I, I, you know, I think that's something. Um, I do. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, you're good. I was literally just about to throw to anybody else that wanted to talk. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Perfect. Um, I do think it's interesting that in a film that is, I want to say rated R explicitly for sex, because there's not any bad words in this and all of the, any that, any of the like gross leg sewing and stuff like that is so extremely dimly lit as to, I would not think uh, add to the rating, but for a movie that's, I think strictly rated R because of sex, there's not a whole lot of actual sex. And when it happens, it's not like fun or glamorous (laughs) at all, which I I think is an interesting choice. I wonder if, well, I don't, the only thing I think of is because of Elle Fanning's age, maybe the reason sure. they would right. go R with it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I, I I mean, it's a pretty proper movie in, in that Chased. way. Yeah, like that's the first word that came to mind for me. You know, yeah, yeah like there is word. sex in yeah. this film, but it is uh, very uh, out of the frame in a lot of ways. I was trying to think back to uh, the rule from this film is not yet rated. Um, how many pumps to a rated R? Um, <laughs> oh, I forgot about the pumps rule. 
and we oh, might have course. just exceeded our number. Um, I see. I see. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that was awkward. All right. <laughs> yeah, Dustin, get us the hell out of here. What, we, what else did you want to talk about? <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about the end of the movie as um, Kirsten Dunn stares off into the middle distance and uh, they're all gathered up there. I think Kirsten has already sort of touched on this point that it is kind of they've been brought back together uh, there towards the end. But I do find her arc to be really fascinating. What, where is Kirsten Dunst at the, at the end of this film emotionally? What, because I think it's ambu- amb- ambiguous. So how do we read that? Yeah, um, that is because they come up with the plan while she is not in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, while uh, she is on the receiving end of uh, the previously mentioned pumps. Um, <laughs> that's right. I had to bring it up again. We can't get away from it that easy. Um, no, I, I don't know if my mic's picking it up, but I am clapping. That was pretty <laughs> spectacular work. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that she does, even though I think that, he, I, I think, what is Mc, McBurney? Is that? Yeah. Yes. Is that his name? The, I think he is a scummy guy. I mean, he's obviously trying to boink multiple people in the house, like uh-huh. without question. Like he's not, he's not a straightforward guy. You know, whether or not that be motivated by strictly, you know, him wanting to stay in the house and not wanting to go back to war, or you know, him genuinely wanting to find someone at the very least to continue to take care of him uh in some uh way shape or form but um i do think that i do think that she cares for him and i think that that is why she goes to his room you know in the first place and so i think she's probably pretty conflicted about the fact that he is he she's just watched him you know die pretty violently and she did not know that was going to happen i i don't think was my reading well i mean she's about to eat the mushrooms right like yeah it, yeah, it yeah. she does not like, know of the plan no one t- no one told her right uh, other than you don't like mushrooms mm-hmm. uh, and she goes along with it uh presumably at that point she puts two and two together right mm-hmm. but it, it is unclear mm-hmm. she definitely seems like dejected i mean she does not seem to be pleased with the situation well, i mean there, there is kind of this moment where she uh, she kind of like touch that burial shroud or something. There, there's a moment where she tries to like say goodbye to the body and uh, Nicole Kidman is not having it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think part of it also is that McBurney to her represents a possible out. You know, mm-hmm. it's alluded to that she is kind of a high society girl and she's been relegated to the school that's in the country, uh, kind of far away from, a, a more privileged life that she probably led kind of that governance status and yeah. Lit, yeah. And, and so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Bernie McBurney represents her way back into maybe marriage and into high society. If she could somehow navigate that. So and it's not so just I, a death of him. It's a death of hope. Is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think that's kind of where it ends there for her. With her resignation to this is just mm. going to be my lot. Yeah. Yeah. At least I am, for the time I am here now. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I like Arthur. I like that take. Um, I think it's really because it, it, it does kind of li- give us more room to think about. And you know, I, there's a very strong possibility I, I won't be able to shake this movie over the next couple of days, and uh, we'll find myself questioning characters' motivations and, and find that maybe there is more depth there than She's I initially gave credit. Really, the only person that gets any sort of background. Yeah. You know, everybody yeah. else is. They seem to just exist within, at, and through the school, and she is noted to have some sort of former life. Right. 
Okie dokie. Well, I think I, we've arrived at the time at which we must render a verdict with this film for the shelf or for the trash or um, to hack off the leg of the film in some way. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to go to you first, Kirsten. What do you say? Shelf or trash for the beguiled? Ah, that's a tough one because I mean, as I mentioned before, that where do you where do you put a film that you think all of its parts are good, but ultimately you didn't necessarily love watching? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I don't know. I guess I'll go ahead and say that if you know if period pieces. Uh, it, it, are your thing or if you're into this kind of um this kind of shtick of of wanting to do things in a very like minimalist naturalist uh realistic uh type of way then yeah this is shelfable i i just i personally didn't love the experience it took me on but um and you know I don't like uh, I don't like scary men yelling. Also, but um, <laughs> I guess I, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead and say that you can put this on on the shelf because if that if that is your thing, then I think that this film does it really well. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you very much. What do you say, Dalton? Shelf or trash? Well, you know it is uh, important as a society for us to have uh, more morality tales of fuck boys getting their comeuppance. <laughs> um, I've been a scary guy yelling and have been yelled at by scary guys. Um, yeah, that's not always a fun thing to watch, even if it's, you know, something that you're, uh, seeing passively. Uh, this is the lightest and gentlest of trashings for me, because I think that there's a lot of things that do what this movie does, uh, just, just to touch more consistently. Um, if you are a couple of completionists though, absolutely. Yeah. This has got to get on your shelf. Um, if you are a cinematography dork, you got to watch this one. It is worth checking out. Uh, I just don't necessarily know that you need to, uh, burden yourself with a physical copy of it Alrighty, thank you very much for that what do you say arthur uh i will uh i will put it on the shelf but but mostly because it is part of a trilogy of films uh for me and and i believe those other two also belong on the shelf okay (laughs) mysterious (laughs) phantom thread being one of them i i am guessing um Alrighty. Uh, I would say, I would say this film is shelfable as well because I think it's infinitely usable. Uh, if you're looking at Kirsten Dunst as an educator, Mm. it's usable. Uh, it's useful to be thinking about her and her career. Also Nicole Kidman, uh, is an interesting thing. So if you Coppola sort of something within that independent cinema in general, period pieces in general, feminist cinema, it's, it's got a lot of possibilities of educational usefulness as far as an example to be used in various kinds of syllabi. I, I think it, it really is kind of far reaching and it's generally the kind of movie you can get away with showing in most circumstances. And I think that's also uh, useful there. So for me, it, it, it's a movie I could, I could definitely easily have in that sort of running Rolodex of examples uh, in my mind that um, would be something I think students would generally enjoy uh, although to, to greater or lesser extent, just based on our conversation today, but, um, I think I could use it. And so for that reason, but as far as something I just watched, I mean, I watched it one time and I put it on a top 10 list and I haven't seen it since. So, you know, for my personal shelving, I probably would not, but for the, for academic purposes, I would keep it. So there you go, dear friends. Uh, those are our thoughts. Um, I guess, 
Uh, Dalton, say social media things so we can get to Arthur saying the thing that I want to know more than anything. <laughs> I mean, truly, yeah, I'm going to do this as quick, quick as I can because i got to get this mystery uh, resolved. Uh, we're on Twitter at Good Trash Media. Uh, you can find uh, links to episodes of this show as well as shows our friends make. You can check out The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, if you are a Randy Newman fan, please do yourself a favor and check out the number one Randy Newman podcast on all the internet. Uh, if you, like me, are obsessed with... Uh, Christendom at large from an anthropological perspective, uh, specifically American Christendom, you should check out The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, We're two real sweet boys trying to talk about some pretty problematic popular culture, mostly through music. Uh, But, you know, they they, they dabble in other things. Uh, It's a good show. Uh, I recommend it. Again, that's at Good Trash Media on Twitter. We're in other places that I cannot recommend you go, uh, but we would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to us on, on the things that you got. Uh, other podcasts you can check out include Twilight, hosted by one Kirsten Thurkelson. Kirsten, you. would you like to tell people about anything else that you do online or, you know, et cetera? Um, sure. Uh, and I mean, it really is just, it's mainly, it's mainly the, uh, the Twilight podcast that I and my, uh, other, uh, grown adult friend, uh, <laughs> <laughs> consume Twilight as well as Twilight related media. Um, and then we talk about it, um, usually, uh, in a very lighthearted manner, uh, we don't like to take ourselves too seriously. We recommend that everybody who is uh, also consuming Twilight-related media also not take themselves or the media too seriously. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely go go listen to that. Um, as well as uh, you know, I I used to write stuff for you guys. If you if you're so inclined to read some, some older uh, feminist film analysis that I did, uh, you're more than welcome to check me out uh, as the the frightful femme on GoodTrashMedia.com. That's right. If you want to navigate a pretty old WordPress website, there is some really great writing from Kirsten on there and Dustin and Arthur as well. I wrote something once and I don't think it was very good. Who's to say? It was like eight years ago at this point. Uh, Was there anything else? Oh, I, you know, hey, uh, Kirsten mentioned uh, her co-host of Twilight. That's Erin Dumos. She also co-hosts a show called Bad Girls Die First. That's pretty cool. Uh, Arthur, I think we're done. We've talked about us. We've talked about our friends. Now it's time for you to, to solve this damn mystery. Give me all the clues. Let any, let me let me be Harry Hole. Any final? <laughs> okay, so here here are some things. So we are narratively jumping uh, to the same time frame. Okay. So so next next week's film takes place roughly around the same time as this okay, one. Okay, so it's not shape of water. Uh, but it's across the pond. Eighteen mm, sixties uh, UK, huh? It's a much smaller film. Okay. Uh, and, and we started this uh, mini marathon with the kind of final final showing from from a star in Daniel Day Lewis, uh, and next week's film uh, birthed a star uh, who has absolutely blown up. And, and we are going to be watching Arthur. We are going to be watching Lady Macbeth, starring one Florence Pugh, also a film from. Uh, the Overlord 2017, and also a film that, as I understand, might involve uh, a touch of poisoning. You are right. Yeah, baby! All right. Hey, I got it. I only needed all the clues. (laughs) Lady Macbeth. I am so excited. We've been talking about this. We've been talking about this movie for, what, four years now? I mean, literally as soon as... Yes, that's when it uh, came out. Yeah, I think you were the first to see it, Arthur, and it comes up all the time. Um... You know, I never look. Uh, I'm never sad to to watch a, a flow pew movie. This is going to be great. <laughs>
Yeah, I'm pumped. That'll be great. So, well, there you go, dear listener. That's what's next. Um, and those were our thoughts on The Beguiled. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.